so we have two Bible readings today. The first one is from the Old Testament. Uh, we have one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. I think it might work out best if we start with Revelations uh, chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. Uh, we are continuing our sermon series on Revelation, um, and it is the letter, uh, we're continuing the letter uh, to the churches. So Revelation 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Uh, Our second reading comes from Numbers. So we'll be jumping around a little bit in Numbers. We'll start off at chapter 22, uh, then jump to chapter 25 and then 31. So starting from chapter 22. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people, because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messages to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammon, to call him, saying, Behold, the people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you blessed is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, and God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, the people have come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now, come curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. 
So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak sent the princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will, sh- will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and settled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. Uh, The next reading comes from chapter 25, verses 1 to 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to to the sacrifices of their God, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The final reading comes from chapter 31, verse 16. Chapter 31, verse 16. Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Am I on? Yes. It's good to be able to say good morning. I usually have to change and say good afternoon, but we've changed the service time. So well done to everyone for getting the memo and being here on time. If anyone walks in the next few minutes, uh, you'll know that they didn't get the memo. Um, uh, my name is Ben, if I haven't met you yet. Uh, if I have met you, my name is also Ben. I know how funny people say that. Um, and I'm the senior pastor of this church. And if it's your first time here, a really warm welcome to you. And if you're here for our welcome lunch later on, our newcomer's lunch, especially a warm welcome to you. And I look forward to meeting you and getting to know you a bit more then. Uh, but if you haven't yet signed up for the uh, newcomer's event and you want to hang around, uh, I think we've catered for extra people and I think there's still space so please feel free to just uh, come along uh, after the service. Um, if you've joined at a good time, we're going through a book of the Bible that Christians tend to avoid because it seems too complicated. Uh, and perhaps uh, if you're not a Christian, you may have heard about it and you may have watched uh, movies or read books about it, and it all seems very strange. Uh, but we are going to preach through this book of the Bible this year and to show that even though the language can be strange, uh, the message is very clear. Uh, We are now in the third week of our sermon series in Revelation. Uh, We started off with a bang to see a vision of who Jesus really is. And now we're in the middle of uh, some of the the messages that he has for the churches uh, back then in the first century. But really it's a message for all of the churches of all time, even for us today. So please keep your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be working through these six verses. Uh, You heard a bit of the background. This is Balaam guy that's inside our passage. And we've heard a bit of his backstory. Uh, but if you want to get a full picture of Balaam, please go back and read Numbers 22 to 25 for yourself. Uh, please join me as I pray for us, asking that God will help us to hear and respond to his word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we give you great thanks that we can be here today, uh, gathered as your people and gathered as those who are also seeking after you. We thank you that um, you speak to us and you speak to us so clearly through your word. And even as we come to parts of the Bible which may seem strange, which we may find hard to understand, 
please help us to see very clearly and hear very clearly what is the message that you have for us. As we hear Jesus speak to the churches back in the first century, help us realize that he's also speaking to us today. The same trials and troubles that they face, the, face, the same challenges to their faith that they faced are the same ones that we face today. And so we pray for us as Christians that we would have ears to hear and that we will respond to Jesus. And for those who are seeking, <clears throat> even though this, this word is mainly for believers, help them to understand why is it that believers would respond to Jesus in this way. Why is it that Jesus is worth being loyal to and faithful to? Uh, this we pray in his name. Amen. Um, hang on, I left my control behind. Give me a second. <clears throat> Thanks. All right, if you've been with us for a little while, you'll know that this is the logo or the kind of the artwork for this sermon series, right? the one who conquers uh, the letters to the churches describes uh, this first three chapters uh, of this book. But we could well have gone with a very common symbol that we all know, uh, the symbol of Nike, as the, the artwork for the sermon series. We'll probably be sued, I'm sure, if we were to use that. Uh, but really, we could have used uh, the Nike logo with the swoosh symbol and the tagline, Just Do It, uh, as the artwork for this sermon series in these first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Because Nike isn't a word that was invented by Bill Bowerman and Phil Knight uh, when they changed their company name from Blue Ribbon Sports right, in 1971 uh, to this, probably the most famous brand uh, of the last few decades, Nike. Uh, they didn't invent the word because they took it from the Greek language. For the word Nike, or Nikao in Greek, uh, means conquer, right? to conquer. Uh, it's a Greek word that means to win or to conquer. Now, 17 times this word Nike, or Nikao, appears in the book of Revelation, and seven times it appears in these seven letters to the seven churches, right? One Nikao for each church, right? There are the, this, this, this vision that's given to John in the book of Revelation, and these messages that are given to the churches in chapters 2 and 3 is so that the church, so that all the churches back in that day and today will conquer, right? Will conquer. The reality for the first century church is the same reality for the 21st century church. We will face challenges which will require for us to fight and to conquer and win. We will have to face up against external forces of persecution and opposition. We will have to face up to internal forces warring within the church, false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. And of course, we'll have to ongoing internal war that happens within us against our own sin and sinful desires and sinful nature. Now, against such pressures and challenges from the world out there, from within the church itself, and from within our own soul as well, the question is always being asked as to how we will respond. Right? How will we respond to all these challenges? Will we walk away from Jesus? You know, we decide it's just all too hard and we just give up. Or perhaps we will shrink back and, and shrivel up. Perhaps like the Ephesian church that we saw two weeks ago, you know, that we lose our love for Jesus and then we lose our love for one another. It's just too hard to stick with Jesus and to stick with the church. Or perhaps we'll just give in, like we will see today in the church of Pergamum. Right? There are false teachers who came with this very enticing message of compromise. Just give in. Don't, don't have to face all this pressure. Just give in to it and maintain your Christian identity but compromise it. 
Now, the call of Revelation and the call of every letter written to all these churches is Nike, right? Just do it. Conquer is what we must do. It's what we must do. Because Jesus, as we've heard, is the eternal God. He's not just some man who lived in history once, 2,000 years ago. He is the, the vision of the eternal God, the almighty king, and the one who will be the end time final judge that every single person in all of history will have to give an account to. And so the message of Revelation is conquer because we must, we must get on his side and we will deeply regret it and we will face the consequences of not being on his side. So conquer we must. But conquer, we can as well, right? Conquer, we can. We can conquer because Jesus is the one who has already conquered. The vision of Revelation 1 shows Jesus to be raised up, to be the one who has rule over every authority in heaven and on earth, over every power. In the book of Revelation, we'll see there will be multiple enemies going to war against Jesus. Religious enemies, political enemies, human enemies, and yet Jesus will win against everyone. Some of you may know this famous verse from Romans chapter 8, verse 37. It tells us this, right? That, uh, we uh, are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The him there is Jesus, right? The one who was first conquered. We are more than conquerors uh, through him who loves us and who has conquered already for us. And so every message to each of the, the church uh, calls on the church to conquer in the face of persecutions and pressures. Two weeks ago, for the Ephesus church, it was to conquer against lovelessness. Last week, for the church of Smyrna, they were to conquer against the fear of suffering for Jesus. And for the Pergamums today, they are to conquer compromise. Conquer compromise. Now, if you've been around for the last few weeks, hopefully you would have realized that for each message to each church, it begins with a bit of a picture of Jesus, just drawn from chapter one's vision. And so in this, uh, in, in this church for Pergamum, the picture of Jesus we see is in verse 12, right? The one, or sorry, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's the picture of Jesus that we're given to this church, right? He's the one that, that holds this sharp two-edged sword, and it's a, a threatening picture. And you see his uh, sharp two-edged sword. And it's really weird. I, I watch Korean dramas, uh, as many of you know. Uh, and it's really weird, they would censor out knives for some reason. They'll make it blurry, but if it's a gun, it's fine. Right? For some reason, right, knives are more threatening to the Koreans than guns are, so they blur them out. Right? But this is a threatening picture. A sharp two-edged sword, the Word of God. Right? Many of us may know of Hebrews chapter 4. It tells us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is like a sword that will expose who we really are. It will expose what the world is really like. The good and the, and the godly and the wicked and the evil will all be clear to see when God's Word speaks into this world. But it doesn't just expose... It will do something more than just expose. It will bring down judgment. Later on in Revelation, this is what we're told. From his mouth, from the mouth of Jesus, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, those who oppose him, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. The sharp two-edged sword that Jesus holds will not just expose all of us for who we are, 
He will bring judgment for those who are against him and against God's ways. And so the message is, as we here see this vision of Jesus at the beginning of this letter, Church of Pergamum, all the churches who are listening, all of us, sit up and listen before it's too late. Listen and sort yourselves out. Now, what do we know about Pergamum? Right? It's very important to know uh, who, what kind of church is this that we're that we dealing with. Now, Jesus says in verse 13 that Pergamum is where Satan's throne is. It is where Satan dwells. And we find out that one of the Christians there, Antipas, was killed in this city called Pergamum. That's quite a scary thing to say, isn't it? To imagine that this city is described as the place where Satan dwells, where his throne is. Right? Sounds very ominous and scary. Now, Pergamum is a real place in history, and our history books tell us why is it that Jesus would call this place, this city, the throne of Satan. Now, this is uh, back in the first century, and the Roman Empire was near its peak. If you know your history, Roman Empire, around AD 100 is when it's at its peak, and this letter was probably written around AD 80, 70 or 80. Um, And the Roman Empire, if you don't know, it spanned at its peak from Spain in the west all the way to Syria in the east. So if you know your geography, there's a massive area from Europe all the way to Asia. And of course, we know that Rome right, was the center of the empire in the west, in Italy. But in the east, Pergamum was probably one of its key cities. In fact, it was the key religious city of the east. It was the center of worship for four of the main Roman gods. In uh, Pergamum, you will find, if you went there, I think there's ruins now, but back in that day, a grand altar to Zeus. It's kind of um, on the left there behind the word imperial. I'm not sure why this has come up yet. But, and then around the corner is a temple to Athenus and another one to Dionysus and another one to Asclepius, right? Four of the main gods of Rome. But the most important thing about Pergamum is that this city was the first city in all of the Roman Empire where they established a temple to worship a living king. The first worship of a living Caesar happened in the city of Pergamum, right? Before that, uh, it didn't happen. Rome created this religion where Caesar was God. Even the living Caesar was to be worshipped. Now, this religion from Rome came to be known as the imperial cult. And so the Christians living in Pergamum were living really at the religious center of Rome, where the pressure to worship the imperial cult, to worship Caesar, the pressure to worship Zeus and Athenus and the rest of them was greatest. And that's why Jesus would describe Pergamum as Satan's throne in the east. And we're told that Jesus knows. He tells the church in Pergamum, I know where you live. Right? He knows fully the, the, the situation that the, Rome, the, the Pergamum Christians live in. He doesn't water it down. You know, sometimes we try and water things down when things are bad. Uh, you know, someone has just lost a child or, or someone comes to you and they are bashed and bruised from being abused by their husband or wife or by someone at school. Or perhaps they are in the despair of depression and, and we try and lighten the mood a little bit. You know, it's okay, right? Things will get better. No, it's all right. Now, obviously, we're trying to be nice, and we're trying to to calm things down, and we're trying to be encouraging, but sometimes what people in pain need is for someone to fully empathize, to be able to acknowledge that, yes, this is terrible. This is bad. I can't imagine anything worse. But of course, sometimes people speak 
into a situation where they haven't experienced, and so they can't know. But Jesus here knows exactly what the Pergamon church is going through. I know where you dwell. I know that you're living in living hell. You are experiencing Rome at its worst. I know how hard it is. Because Jesus is not just a man. He's the one who knows all things, who sees all things. He knows what his church is going through. And knowing all these things, knowing where they live in the throne room of Satan on earth, he says to them, you are holding fast to my name. They're confessing Jesus. They're standing up, calling themselves Christians in the home, in the workplace, in the marketplace. Maybe they're wearing their cross, if they had one back in those days. Or they, they stuck the fish onto their horse cart right, to tell people that they're Christian. And Jesus knows that they're doing this under intense pressure. This commendation is a, a wonderful commendation, a wonderful encouragement from Jesus, isn't it? Now, we have heard that it was definitely not easy. Antipas, one of their brothers, had been killed for his faith. We heard last week in Smyrna, another guy called uh, Polycarp also was martyred, was killed because of his faith. And many of us know other people all the way through history, like John Wycliffe and, and more recently Jim Elliot. But of course, there are untold millions of Christians who have also suffered for the name of Jesus. Some facing extreme circumstances and situations and others maybe much less so. Now, many of us in this room confess Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. We would happily and boldly tell people that we are Christians to our family and to our friends and to our colleagues. We might not live where Satan dwells in the way that the Pergamum church did, but we are told in scriptures that, that this world is still under some sort of rule of Satan, he is like a lion that is prowling, seeking to devour believers of Jesus. There is still pressure and there is still persecution to be faced. And so, if you confess Christ, Jesus knows exactly what it costs you to do so. Be encouraged by that, right? He knows exactly the situation that you find yourself in, the personal struggles, the family struggles, the, the struggles in, in school and the workplace. All that he knows and he commends you for holding on to him and calling yourself a Christian. Now, the Pergamum church, they were a confessing Christian church. But as we hear next, some of them had become compromised Christians, right? Compromised Christians. Verse 14. But I have few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now two weeks ago, we, when we heard about the church of Ephesus in the beginning of chapter 2, we heard that they were theologically strong. They had rejected the Nicolaitans and their works. But here, for the Pergamons, we find that they are succumbing to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, right? And we don't know a lot about what the teaching of the Nicolaitans is, in fact, the only thing we know is from this passage here, and the Nicolaitan teaching seems to be a propagation of Balaam's teaching from a thousand odd years ago. And so we are thinking, what is Balaam's teaching, right? How do we know what the Nicolaitans were teaching if we don't know what the Balaams were teaching or what Balaam was teaching? And that's why we had Numbers 22 to 25 uh, bits of it read out to us before. And let me tell you just enough about the story. I mean, the story is quite long. You can go read it for yourself. But let me tell you enough about Balaam so you understand what's going on. 
Now, Balaam, this is about 1,000 plus BC, was a non-Israelite, so he wasn't a Jew, he wasn't a people of God, a Gentile diviner or sorcerer or prophet. And he was a guy who was paid for hire. So we hear in the story, if you wanted someone to be blessed, you would pay him to, be, to bless that group. Or you want someone to be cursed, you would pay him and he would bring a curse. Uh, it's kind of like a shaman, right, for the, kind of the Asian culture. Um, and so Balaam is that guy. And Balak, the king of Moab, uh, he knows that Israel is on a warpath, right? Uh, under the, the judgment of God, um, God was doing two things. He was bringing Israel from Egypt to a promised land, which he was give his people. But in the process of that, he was also judging all these wicked nations, right, who not had just turned against God, but who lived in such wicked ways, people like the Moabites. And Israel was going through city by city under God's judgment, destroying cities. And Moab was next. And so Balak goes, I better employ this prophet guy to bring a curse on Israel before they come into town. Now, long story short, uh, Balaam is approached by Balak. Balaam approaches God to figure out whether he should do this or not. And God tells him, do not curse Israel because I'm gonna, I am blessing them. And so Balaam will go back to Balak. And Balak keeps throwing money at Balaam. And, all, and over three times, God says, you can't do it. Right? So Balaam wasn't allowed to curse Israel. So what will Balaam do? He wants to be paid. Right? He's a prophet for hire. So he found another way to bring Israel down. Since Balaam couldn't curse God's people directly, he taught Balak another way, right? The way of enticing Israel's downfall by getting them to be disloyal to God. And this is what we're told, right? At the end of the story, what Balaam actually taught was this. Behold these, right? The, the people of Balak, the people of Moab, um, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now, the incident of Peor is described for us, as we heard in the reading before in Numbers 25. When Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, in case you have, uh, you're confused, Balaam, the Gentile prophet, taught Balak, the Moabite king, to entice God's people, Israel, uh, to worship the Moabite gods. And why was that enticing? Because they get to feast and enjoy all of the blessings of these Moabite religions, including the sexual immorality of fertility worship. Okay? So that's what's going on. Right? You couldn't directly curse Israel, so let's entice them into disloyalty. Balaam taught a message of compromise. Balaam was basically saying to Israel, you know, Israel, you know, you worship your Yahweh God, right, the God of Israel, that's great, but check out all these Moabite gods, check out all the benefits and the blessings and the pleasures that they offer. You don't have to stop worshipping your Yahweh God, but why don't you worship Yahweh God plus all these other ones also. So the Nicolaitans were teaching this very same thing a thousand plus years later in the city of Pergamum. A message of compromise. Yes, you guys worship Jesus. Yes, you call yourself Christians. Yes, you wear your cross. That's great. But, you know, the, the, the gods of Rome and Caesar, you can worship them also. Now, ask yourself, why would this be enticing for the church in Pergamum, for the Christians in Pergamum? Well, it would have been enticing because being able to also worship Rome and Caesar and Zeus and all the other gods 
would mean that you would avoid all the persecution and pressure. You can avoid all that, right? They can avoid suffering. You can avoid the fear of being arrested and, and tortured and perhaps even killed, which many Christians were back in those days. You wouldn't have to feel out of place and out of sync and awkward among your family members who aren't Christians and your colleagues and your classmates. And the benefit of being able to compromise is to be able to enjoy the good life that worshipping Rome and her gods give. To be able to go hang out at all of the temple worship, all the idol worship where there was lots of feasting. There was still fertility, right? You couldn't haul yourself away and enjoy all the sexual pleasures that those religions offer. You get to enjoy, you get to engage with full freedom, no restrictions, the full family, social, political life of the Roman Empire. Just be like everybody else. Why would compromise be enticing for the Pergamum church? Because you can still claim to be Christian, but you can avoid all the pain, and you can enjoy all of the gain. Win-win. Compromise sounds good, doesn't it? Even to us today. And the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans continues strong into the 21st century. Sometimes it's blatant. People within Christian churches would say, you can have it all. You can have the Jesus, but you can have the world. But oftentimes it's very subtle. Either way, Christians are lapping up the, the, the idea, the teaching that we can just be compromised Christians. We want to hold on to our Christian faith we want to be able to say that we are Christians. We want to be able to even say very proudly that we stand for Christ. We'll go to church every week and we'll tell people about that. We'll wear that cross. We'll put that fish on the car. Perhaps we'll even put up with some persecution and pressures. But then slowly, small ways, maybe knowingly or unknowingly, compromise starts to seep in into our lives. Right? We, we haven't given calling ourselves Christians, but it starts to get a bit too hard some of the teachings are a bit too strong. Some of the, the things that I have to stand for are, are too demanding. So then we compromise a little bit and we give in. Now let me bring up three scenarios, okay, situations by which compromise can seep in for Christians. Now perhaps the first scenario is this. You have to stand up courageously as a Christian in a family of non-Christians. Uh, maybe you have a lot of non-Christians in your, in your, in your course or in your workplace. And you started off being quite bold about sharing your faith, and, and you would try and engage in conversation with mom and dad or with siblings uh, about Christianity. But after a while, they start getting more upset at you and more angry and more annoyed. And they, they start making things difficult for you. Or maybe your colleagues start to mock you more directly, or maybe indirectly, they, 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 they criticize and they mock Christian values and the gospel. After some time, you kind of feel like... Do I really want to stand up and stand out? Do I really want to courageously, boldly keep witnessing to my family and to my friends? And maybe you think, well, not like I'm giving up on Christ. I'm still a Christian. I'll still go to church. But maybe I'll just do that and keep quiet. Maybe it's just easier not to share my faith and not try to persuade my family and friends about the gospel. And so I compromise. Now here's another one. Perhaps if you're a family person and you feel like, hmm, I'm going to lead my family to be totally devoted to Christ. And what that means is that we'll be committed to going to church, be committed to sending the kids to kids' church and to youth group. 
Uh, and we're going to be committed to being generous with our finances, right, to the work of the gospel in the church and around the world. We're also going to be committed to giving our resources, our time and our energy as a family, to get to know other families, other friends in school and, and, and in netball and in rugby, and, and to be able to find ways to reach out to them. And what you find is that that means that I'll have less time for my studies. I won't be able to get the A plus in my primary school result that will get me into QA. I won't be able to maintain my seven standard at GPA in, in uni. And I won't be able to spend that money to renovate my house and to buy an investment property and to upgrade my car and to go for better overseas holidays. No more just Japan, but Aspen, right? Just like everyone else on my street. Just like all of my kids' friends and their families and what they do. I'm going to miss out. I'm going to miss out on building up my business and promoting myself in my career path. And so maybe then we think, is it really worth it to be so full on for Jesus? And so we tell our children, don't waste so much time on church. You know, what's missing a few youth groups? What's missing a few family Bible studies? It's a busy period. You've got assignments you've got to do. The exam's coming up. I've got a project to do at work that I need to spend more time on. Otherwise, my colleague will get the praise and I won't. And we compromise. Now, back in my uni days, which is starting to be a long time ago now, uh, 20 over years, uh, we were getting more and more involved in YF uh, and ministering at church and at ES. Uh, back, back in those days, for, we used to fly down to Sydney uh, at quite a bit of expense to get trained up. 20 years ago, there wasn't cheap Jetstar flights or whatnot. I think it cost us about $500 return, plus about $500 for the conference fees, about $1,000. We go to these conferences, and then we meet other, other Christians from churches in Sydney and other places. And we got to know this one guy who was a youth leader uh, who was now a worker. Right, he'd been serving in ministry for maybe 8, 10 years um, as, a lay, as a lay leader, and we got to know him. And he started to get to know us and realize how much time and money we were spending to serve God and to be involved in Christian ministry. And this is what he said to us. <clears throat> Don't be too full on in your Christian life. Don't be too zealous, right? You need balance. Yes, you go to church. Yes, do a Bible study. Yes, minister to people. They're all good things, definitely. But you've got to make sure that you succeed in your studies and in your work also. You've got to make sure you enjoy your holidays and your hobbies and your traveling and your sports. And this is the key. They are all equally important. All equally important. Balance. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't hear me wrong, right? Being loyal to Jesus does not mean we don't study and we don't work and we don't play sport and we don't go on holidays. Don't hear me wrong. It doesn't mean those things. But they're not equally important. Right? It's not that you have one quarter God one quarter studies and work, one quarter enjoyment of life, and then whatever, right? It, 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 it doesn't work like that. Being a Christian means doing all things for the glory of Jesus. He is our king. We don't belong to multiple kingdoms. We belong to one king, Jesus. And how we do studying, and how we do work, and how we do sport, and how we do holidays, and how we do hobbies, they all have to, do it to, to be understood in light of what it means to serve and honor Jesus Christ. Now, I knew that youth leader well. <clears throat> At that time, it sounded like a great teaching, like hearing from him, who's someone who was about five, six years ahead of us, successful in his career, still serving at church. But I now see that what he meant was clear. 
He was saying that our Christian worship must leave room for the pursuit of other equally important things. He was a teacher of compromise. Worship Jesus, yes, but worship other things also. Now, one final one. Now, we all have desires, don't we? We all have desires. We are made like that. And at times, our desires can grow strong. And now, what do we do about that? Maybe our desire might be, I have same-sex urges. Or, I have heterosex urges. I really desperately want a boyfriend or girlfriend. I really want to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Or, I'm really unhappy in my marriage. It is no longer what God wants me to have, so I want to have a divorce. I become really attracted, and I'm really connected with this person I met at work, and I want to have an affair. Or maybe it's something else. I, I really want to, be, to, 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 to get promoted in my work and to be more recognized for my ability. So I will do whatever it takes to get ahead in my career. Or maybe we have relationships where people are hurting us and I really want revenge. I really want to get back at that person to make them feel the hurt that they've made me feel. Or maybe it's a desire to fit in. I want to have friends. I want to be accepted. I want to be liked. Now we desire many things, don't we? Some things are good and normal desires, and other things are evil and wicked desires. But what do we do with our desires when they become so strong? Do we submit them to the Word of God and God's ways, or do we compromise? And we start to think to ourselves, I'll just downgrade what Jesus says, or I will distort it, change what it says, or maybe I will downright deny what God says about holy and godly character and behavior. And slowly, as I downgrade and I distort and I deny, then I'll say, well, sexual immorality, it's not that bad. Sleeping with my boyfriend and girlfriend, I know that's outside of marriage, but we're going to get married anyway. And after all, isn't sex just about love? And I love her. I will divorce my wife because I'm not happy and God wants me to be happy. My best friend's wife said that to him. God wants me to be happy. I'm not happy in this marriage, so I'm out. And she kept holding on to a Christian identity. Or maybe we justify our anger and our mistreatment of others. Well, of course, I've got the right to lash out. You know how much they've hurt me? Isn't God a God of justice? Can't I lash out back? Can't I get my revenge? God understands that this is what I need right now. I need my work. I need my pleasures. I need my revenge. And so we justify, we we compromise, don't we? We let it seep in, and then we let it take over to live the way, ultimately, that I want to live. And yet we hold on and we, we delude ourselves as Christians and say, I'm still Christian, even though I am trying to downgrade, distort, or deny Jesus. Being a Christian is certainly not an easy thing. It's an immense challenge. And maybe if you're a seeker here, you go, thank you so much for preaching this. I'm going to walk away now. I don't want to be a Christian anymore. But stay, stay till the end, okay? It's worth it. It's worth it, but it is hard. It's challenging. And there's always enticements to compromise our worship and loyalty to Jesus to avoid the pain and to be able to enjoy the gain. But compromise kills. Compromise kills. Jesus says in verse 16, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's only one instruction to this church, and that is to repent. 
Now, who is to repent? Have a look carefully at verse 16. Who is to repent? It is the you, right, in this verse and in this passage. And the you in this passage includes uh, the entire church in Pergamum. The faithful ones who are not compromising, as well as the false teachers and those who are following the false teaching. And Jesus says the entire church is to repent before Jesus comes back and wars against the church, right? Especially not the church, but wars against the false teachers and the followers, right? The compromisers. It's not strange, isn't it? If it's only the false teachers and the compromisers who are doing the wrong thing, why does the whole church right, have to repent? You wonder about that? Why is he directing it to the whole church? Now, it could be that maybe every Christian suffers some kind of compromise. And that's true, isn't it? It doesn't matter whether you're a false teacher and actively following the false teaching. Every Christian compromises in some way, and that is true. And so we ought to repent from our compromise. But I do think that this instruction here is much more specific than that. The call to repent here is to, for the church to repent about not acting right, against uh, these false teachers and those who are following them. They are to repent of not going to war right, against the false teachers and their followers. They should have been doing this before Jesus comes and does war against them. They should have been using the sword of God's word to correct and to rebuke. And the thing that they were to do this in the hope that they would change, that they would repent. If you were to read your Bible, especially the New Testament, the church is always called right, to deal with sin and error within the church. But the reason for doing so, the outcomes that we're trying to achieve is very clear. It's in the hope that people would turn back to God. Right? We are not given the role of being a judge in order to execute and condemn people. We're given the role to make judgments and to correct in order to win people back for them to repent and change. This is our opportunity now before Jesus comes back. Because when he comes back with his sword, it will be to reveal, but it will be to bring about the final judgment. And we get to do this amazing, loving work of helping people to change before it is too late. We must act to weed out compromise. We need to be able to call it out and correct it in the hope that people will respond and repent before it is too late. The entire church is responsible for this. Now, some of you may know that um, that's what we do on the pulpit, isn't it? We, we call out things, not because we are on our high horse and I'm more holy than you or anything. It's because it's my job as your pastor to be able to help you to realize what is right and what is wrong, what is godly and ungodly, what does it mean to, to be faithful to Jesus, and what does it mean to be disloyal to him. Many of you might have Steve as a friend on Facebook, and you know that he's the guy who engages publicly with false teaching. Right, on his blog, he does that as well. I'm not, I'm not a social media kind of guy, so I don't do that kind of thing. But Steve has taken upon himself to, to engage in that level. And sometimes you will see him going head-to-head uh, -head with some people as he deals with false teaching out there. The principle being that public false teachers require a public response. Right? And sometimes things happen within the church, and we keep it within the church. But if something happens out there in the big world, having to interact with that is the right thing to do. But we as Christians can feel uncomfortable about that, can't we? To see your pastor having this debate online right, with people who have a different view and who start getting quite angry at things. And maybe you're uncomfortable within the church. Why is the pastor, why are the leaders right, approaching me and, and, and talking to me about my sins? But then I want you all to know that it's not just the pastor and the leader's job. It's the, it's the, the responsibility of every Christian to help each other overcome our sin. To overcome 
the sin of compromise, to conquer compromise together. Now, how do we do this? If you want to help each other conquer compromise, well, firstly, you need to know what is the uncompromised life. You need to know the Word of God enough to know what are God's ways and what is, what is godly living, what does faithfulness to Jesus look like. And having known that, then you need discernment and wisdom to know how do I see whether people are living like that or not. And of course, firstly, you have to take the log out of your own eye, make sure that you are right in those areas, but you don't have to be perfect to be able to share with someone else who's imperfect. And then you need loving, you need to have true love and deep concern for people. So you're not going there as a judge, but you're going there as a loving brother and sister, a fellow sinner, hoping for them to change. You can't help people conquer compromise if you don't know their lives. Are you very just happy with superficial conversations? Or do you actually want to get to know people truly? And then after that, we need the courage, don't we? To speak, to confront, to correct, and to rebuke. Always with the hope that people would change for their good. We're not trying to win arguments. We're trying to win people. We're trying to win people. We know that we want to do this because we are wanting them to turn and repent before it's too late. Before the end time judge Jesus returns. And so Jesus calls on the church to repent of compromise. Let us repent of not helping each other to fight the sin of compromise. Now we end today uh, with the way that every church, uh, every letter to every church ends. And it's with a word of great encouragement, of blessing to the one who conquers. Last one, last verse. Uh, Verse 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, this uh, is a tricky verse because no one really knows what the hidden manna is, and no one really knows what this white stone with a new name written on it really is. There's many options. But let me just say that all the options are great. And the most important thing to know about this is that the manna probably symbolizes God's provision, just like he did in the desert in the Exodus. It's about uh, physical food, which symbolizes the spiritual food, the spiritual life which God gives. The white stone probably refers to a stone of acquittal in a court of law or an entry pass into a celebratory feast after you win some kind of games. Right? Those are some of the options. But they all sound really good stuff, right? The most important good stuff is that it's Jesus, the conqueror, who gives it to those who conquers. And all these symbols are to do with victory, to do with being invited in, having done well, declared innocent, forgiven, fellowship with God, entry into heaven, into our eternal kingdom. And this good blessing, great eternal blessings, are given to those who conquer. So Nike has got it right. Just do it. Right? Conquer, we must. Because Jesus is worth our uncompromising worship. If you don't quite get that yet, go back to the first sermon of the series and get to know who Jesus really is. He truly is the eternal God. Eternal means through all time, right? We're not talking about some local, uh, a time-bound God. We're talking about the eternal God. He is the almighty king, the ruler of all rulers, and he is the end-time judge. If there's one person, there's one being worthy of uncompromised worship and following, it is Jesus. But conquering also we can. The one who conquers 
helps us to conquer. We are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. So let us conquer compromise in our own lives and let us make sure we help each other within the church to conquer compromise so that we can offer uncompromised worship to our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that the words given uh, to John by Jesus to the church in Pergamum 2,000 years ago is as relevant today as it has ever been. Please help us to see that Jesus is really worth our uncompromised worship. And please help us to strive to conquer compromise in any shape or form that we find ourselves compromising in, both in our own lives, but in the lives of the people around us in the church. We pray that you will help us to see that Jesus is worth it. We pray that you help us see that it requires great effort for us to, to conquer and to fight in this way. So please give us the strength we need to follow Jesus and follow him faithfully. For this we pray in his name. Amen.